Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to you. My name is Andre, I'm a pastor here at uh, Bethesda. And um, you may notice that I'm wearing a colorful jumper. And as many of you have noticed and pointed out to me already, but it is because this is when we start uh, our uh, Christmas celebration, when we start to prepare ourselves um, and continue to and begin our reflection, particularly on the birth of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. So traditionally, this is the first Sunday in Advent, and we're beginning uh, this week to do that. Um, now, this is a time when we look back, not to our own deeds and works and failures, but it's a time when we look back to what God has done for us and see how God had fulfilled his promises and brought about the promised arrival of his son, the Messiah. And as we do that, our eyes are pointed forwards as we prepare, as we wait for the second advent, the second coming of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back to see what he has done, and we look forward to see what he will still do. And as we gather around the table in a minute, we'll be doing the same thing, looking back to that finished work of Christ on the cross and looking forward to when he comes again. And when we eat and drink, not symbolically in anticipation of Christ, but because it will be fulfilled and he will eat and drink with us. So as we think about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, let that cast your mind forward to his coming. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, just as a way of introducing the series, is that we're thinking about the birth of Christ, particularly from the point of view of spiritual warfare. Now, I appreciate that this is not very common to, to associate the birth of Christ with his victory over Satan, but it is quite a prominent theme in Scripture. And look, we meet to celebrate Christmas every year, so there's nothing wrong with exploring other biblical avenues of what that means. And so we're simply exploring a facet of, the, of what the birth of Christ means for us, and in particular, its implications for Christ's victory over Satan. So we're going to be doing that together. But I think it's really, really important to do that this time of year because actually Christmas is a time when Christians are in danger. Um, not just us, the whole world, but it is a time when we are in danger, perhaps more so than other times in the year. Because there are few moments in the course of the year that direct our thoughts and our minds to the things of this world in quite the same way that the Christmas season does. It's quite remarkable, really. Now, at a moment in history when we celebrate the God coming into this world and the good news of the fact that there is another world to come and that's the world that we live for, if we're not careful, Christmas can very easily point us to become worldly, point us to the things of this world. It can do that, obviously, in all the good things that we celebrate, Christmas trees and presents and uh, gathering around with family and friends and having meals together and the lights and I don't know if anyone was brave enough to go to the official turning on of the lights uh, yesterday. We didn't. We chickened out of, of it given, given the uh, dreadful conditions. But, but anyway, th these sorts of things, 
Um, even the kind of Christmas feeling, uh, the, the Christmas cheer at this time of the year is in danger of becoming secularized. It gets turned into a worldly thing. The business of loving each other and being kind to each other. Well, even that can become a worldly thing if that is the substance of our religion. Just to love people and do good to them. Well, yes, that's the implication. That's the result. That's how we act in response to the main thing. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is the gospel. The good news that there is a God and that he has done an extraordinary thing to save us for a world that comes after this world. And yes, we respond to that by giving thanks to God for all these good things, for family, for food, for presents, for time gathered around, for doing good things for people. But as one radio host said um, to another, I think it was last Christmas, said, uh, you know, I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. It's a time when people are unusually nice to each other. And the other radio host said, well, why don't we just do that all throughout the year? And the, the first host said, oh, no, that would be far too difficult. We only have enough emotional energy as human beings to be nice to each other for, for a couple of months, and then it just fades away. And you see, that's the danger. If we make it just about the Christmas spirit, or just about the presence or the cheer or this family, the friends, this time of year, and actually all of our attention is drawn to this world, and we cut ourselves off from the power that enables us to love, not just now, over Christmas, but throughout the year. And that power is the gospel itself. And so that's what we're thinking of. As we look at this passage in Revelation, what we see is that a book that was written to help Christians understand why it is that they were going through the tremendous suffering that they were going through. If you like, it was a kind of window into heaven. What on earth is going on why are we suffering so much and being put to death and being persecuted as well as going through all the ordinary struggles of our life in this world? What is God doing? What are the saints in heaven doing? Why is all of this happening? And Revelation, if you like, just sort of peels back the window into eternity so that we can understand the reality of what is going on in this world. That we don't view the world simply from the perspective of the world, but we see that there are other things at play. We are, I think, as modern Western Christians, naturally inclined to dismiss things about the spiritual world. We're naturally suspicious of any talk about Satan, any talk about demons, any talk about angels, any talk about the afterlife, any talk about heaven or hell. The danger with that is that the Bible clearly does talk about these things and they are as certain in the Bible's point of view as is God himself. But the other problem is it's a slippery slope, isn't it? You start to undermine the reality of certain spiritual things, it kind of is a slippery slope until you undermine the very existence of God himself. We must 
decide as Christians, are we going to live in the world as it is described by the Bible? Or are we going to live in the world as it is described by modern Western philosophies? Like atheism, secularism, materialism. We must make that choice. And what Revelation 12 is going to do is get us to see Christmas, get us to see the birth of Christ, not in worldly terms, a baby in a manger with shepherds and angels, not that it all happened like that. We had shepherds and wise men and they're all around the, the manger and there's a donkey and none of those things actually happened like that in the Bible, but I won't go into that. This worldly perspective of just seeing Jesus as a baby in a manger needs to be viewed from the spiritual perspective of seeing him as the ruler with an iron scepter who breaks the spiritual forces that have held this world captive. So let's begin to see this. As we look at, at Revelation 12, we see that um, it's divided into three basic scenes. The first scene is war, and all three scenes are united by one common idea. It is warfare against Satan. In the first six verses, you see that the warfare against Satan is fought uh, between Satan and Christ and this mysterious woman. We'll get to in a moment. Then secondly, you have Satan again, but this time being fought by Michael and all of the angels. And in the third scene, you see Satan again fighting this mysterious woman, but when he fails, goes after the rest of her children, uh, which is the church. So Satan fighting is what unites all three of these scenes in the book of Revelation. Um, so I wonder, and the first, so, so the first scene is the Satan versus Christ. That is the first scene of this battle, Satan versus Christ, if you look at the first six verses. I don't know if you've ever played that game where you, uh, or it's not really a game, but where you found yourself looking up at the stars on a nice summer's evening, you're up with your friends or you're lying down in the, on the, the hills or on the sand of the, the sea, and you look up and you see all the stars, and it's a particularly clear night, and you can see them all so clearly. And then you play that game where you start to try and picture images, a bit like with the clouds. I don't know, none of you look like you've done this before. I'm beginning to wonder if I'm just weird. Um, this has been a foregone conclusion for many of us. But the, uh, you look at it and you start to picture the scene. So just humor me for a moment. Imagine in your mind's eye that you can see a star full of skies. If you look up, at the, you'll be blinded by the lights. But, you know, just imagine. And imagine you see in the stars, suddenly a picture starts to come together. A big sign. And the first sign that appears in the heavens is a sign of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So you begin to see this picture come together. It's a woman, and she's pregnant, and she's giving birth, but she's majestic. She's clothed in the sun. The moon is at her feet. Now, who is this woman? What are we to make of this woman? Especially because we find out that this woman gave birth to a son who would rule the nations with nine scepter. In other words, would give birth to Christ, the Messiah. So obviously our attention goes to Mary. Mary is the one who gives birth to Christ. This must be a picture of, of Mary. And that certainly makes sense of some, some of the information. But then you think, well, 
what is the, the stars and the sun and the moon? What does that have to do with Mary? And then you realize, so oh, hang on a second. Um, there's another sign that appears in heaven. In verse 3, then another sign appeared. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So the second image is clearly at war with this first image and doesn't think much of the child that is about to give birth. So hang on, this is, this is ringing bells of another biblical image. We think of, of Eve. Because in Genesis 3, there was this promise that was given to Eve that one of her children, one of her offspring, one of her descendants would be born. And he, that male offspring, would crush the serpent's head, the same serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve, the snake, this dragon. So now we're thinking, is this Mary or is this Eve? And then the picture gets even more complicated because we still haven't answered the question about the sun and the moon and the stars. What, what is the symbolism of that? It's obviously symbolic of something. And then you go back to Genesis 37 and you remember that there was this dream that Joseph had that described the, the people of God as the sun and the moon and the stars. The whole lineage of God's people. And so suddenly, maybe this isn't actually one literal woman. Suddenly, this is, maybe this is a symbolic woman of all the people of God. And then you realize that elsewhere in Revelation, this happens too. Because there is this woman who's clearly a symbol of Babylon, who's clearly a symbol of the whole world in opposition to God. So there are these two symbolic women in the book of Revelation. And so, answer me, Beck. Is it Mary? Is it Eve? Or is it the whole people of God? And the answer to that is yes. Because remember, we're reading the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is dealing with, it's like walking through an art gallery. And you see pictures. And various pictures all describing the same events. And so yes, it's talking about the whole history of God's people beginning with the promise made to Eve. And ultimately fulfilled in Mary giving birth to Christ. Yes. So you have these two signs. The woman, the dragon, who clearly is Satan himself, his very appearance is blasphemous. He has seven heads and seven crowns on his heads. Seven, throughout Revelation, is symbolic of God's perfection. It's God himself. It's heaven. So here is Satan masquerading as God himself, except he's an ugly, distorted form of God. He is a dragon with seven heads and seven crowns on its heads. And there's clearly this, this war between the signs. And it seems to be going back all the way to the beginning. So you go all the way back to the beginning of, of Eve and you go through the history of God's people through to the birth of Christ and you realize even in Christ's life there are these assassination attempts all the way to try and pre prevent the Messiah coming. This, we don't have time to go through all of them here, but just think for a moment in the life of Christ. At his birth, what happens? Well, 
He has to be rushed away to Egypt because all of the infants are being killed in order to kill Christ. You move on to his public life. The moment he begins his ministry, and suddenly, who do you find there? Satan. What is he tempting Christ to do? Throw himself off the top of, of the highest point of the temple. It's an assassination attempt. Satan wants to destroy Christ. He wants to destroy the woman. You get through various other possible assassination attempts, like the, the storm and the boat and all that kind of thing, and then you get to the cross itself where Satan apparently is victorious over Christ. He, he has destroyed him. But, but that's not how it ends. She gave birth to a son, verse 5, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Satan's attack on the birth of this child fails. The child receives the iron scepter. He becomes king. Even though he is crucified, he is raised again. And he is Lord and king over all at the right hand of the Father. So what do we need to know now, actually, the birth of Christ was something that Satan hated and feared and set out to destroy. It was the key invasion into enemy territory, and Satan knew it, and he didn't want to allow it, and he tried his best to destroy it, but he failed. Christ was raised. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is Lord over all. Then the battle scene shifts. Christ has, has failed. Sorry, Satan has failed. Christ is king. He is ruling over the nations. But then there is this war that continues, this time not against Christ and Satan, or not against the woman and Satan, but Michael and the angels. So in verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So again you have this attack, Satan and his angels versus Michael and his angels. And again, Satan fails. And again, he is cast down. Now, there's a couple of options for interpretation here as well. Lots and lots of Christians have read Revelation 12 and seen this as talking about the original corruption of Satan. A time when Satan rebelled against God, became corrupt, and was cast down. That is why we have uh, Satan and demons today. That happened, but, and the view is that this is one of the, the passages that talk about it. Another view, though, is that it isn't so much talking about that, but talking about the future. And actually, it's talking about the moment when Satan and all of his demons are finally destroyed. 
and cast down. That also has a good representation going back in the history of reading the Bible. You can find that in lots of commentaries and in lots of, of older writings on, on the scriptures. However, there is another option to interpret this, and this is the one that I think makes most sense of it. And that is that it's not so much talking about Satan's original corruption when Lucifer became Satan, so to speak. Neither is it talking about his final destruction that's still coming in the book of Revelation. But it's talking about the moment when he was cast from heaven to earth. I need to give you a little bit of background to explain what I'm talking about. You remember the book of Job. You know the book of Job? I'm looking for any kind of life. Okay, thank you. Um, right, the, the book of Job begins with Satan in the presence of God. He's there, gathered with the whole heavenly council. You can go read about it in Job 1 and 2. And there Satan is accusing Job. He is acting as Satan, the accuser. And he's saying the only reason Job loves you is because you've blessed him so much. And there follows the whole book of Job. But can you see there that at that point, Satan is Satan. He's not Lucifer. He's Satan. He's the accuser. And he is part of the heavenly council. He is there with all of the other angels gathered in the heavenly council with God. It is only after that where Satan loses his position in heaven. Once I had a, a job um, as being a bouncer of a nightclub. This was in my wayward youth. And it was in my youth. The irony was that I was 16 at the time. And so I was asking for the IDs of those who were supposed to be older than 21 when I, in fact, wasn't even older than, than 21 myself. It was a silly job. I should never have been there in the first place. But my job was, essentially, because I was quite a lumpy teenager, was that I would help to throw people out of the nightclub when they became too much to handle. As a teenager, I enjoyed that sort of thing. And so that's what I did. Uh, together with my other teenage friend who was older than me. He was 17, so he had more right to be there than me. But in this job, that was, that was the task. When the manager would say to us, so-and-so is causing problems, then our job would be to go and manhandle this person out of the club. I think that what we're seeing here in verse 7 is Michael as a kind of bouncer, Christ has lost the war. And in the end of, of, of verse 5 and 6, Christ is Lord. He is king. He has been given the scepter and the crown. He rules over all the nations. The war is finished and Satan is lost. Now he's being cast down. Notice the direction where he's being cast down. He, in verse 8, was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. They're not part of the heavenly council anymore. But they are cast down to earth. They are hurled downwards. In other words, so what's going on here is not so much that this is talking about some other battle other than the one Christ won, as it's talking about the angels being sent in to say that now that Christ has the victory and has won the war, you cast Satan down. That was what Michael and the angel does. They acted like kind of cosmic bouncers and pushed Satan out of the heavenly realms and cast him down to earth. And what that means is that Satan may still be an accuser, 
But because Christ was born in the flesh, on Christmas Day thousands of years ago, over 2,000 years ago, because he was born, and because Satan could not destroy him, and because he died for us in our sins, and because he was raised again to life, and because he was given the crown and the scepter, because of all that, Satan may still accuse you, but he cannot do it to God. He cannot accuse you before God anymore because he has lost his place in the heavenly council. He's not there anymore. This was Satan's chief strategy. Oh, look at, look at Andre again. Can you believe it? After all that you've done for him, that he would turn around and abuse your grace like this, knowing that he'd be forgiven, he committed the same sin again. And he would accuse and say, is this the kind of way that you'd expect a saint to behave? He's not worthy. He only loves you because of the good things that you've given him. You take those things away, he won't love you anymore. That was his work, to point out our sins before God, to point out that we deserve condemnation before God, to point out that we deserved nothing but judgment. But Satan is not in the heavenly council anymore. Christ has been victorious over him. And Michael and the angels, at Christ's command, have cast him down. But that does not mean that Satan is not active or dangerous or doing anything. This is our third and final point. Where is Satan now? Well, in verse 13, you see this. When the, the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep, the commands, keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So where is Satan now? What is he doing now that he's been hurled to earth, now that he has been defeated? Out of pure rage and pure vengeance, he seeks to destroy the rest of God's children, the rest of God's people. That's who the offspring of the woman are. They not, on, not only did God's people give birth to the Messiah, but now in the Messiah, we all have been joined in with God's people. It's not only Israel that gives birth to the Messiah, but now because of the sire, we all are part of Israel. And so as we go forward, as we trust in Christ, as we believe the testimony about him, his blood shed for us, that means that we now are part of this people of God. And this is glorious because it means that because of the blood of the lamb, our sins are forgiven. Because of his victory over Satan, there is no one to accuse us before God. Because 
Christ has ascended it and is at the right hand of the Father. It means he constantly intercedes and pleads our case before the Father with no accuser there to point out anything to the contrary. He may accuse us to us, but Satan cannot accuse us to God anymore because Christ has won the victory and we are forgiven. But being part of this people means that we now have the same enemy that Christ had. This dragon who sought to destroy Christ and couldn't. This dragon who sought to rebel against the angels who wanted to hurl him down to the earth but couldn't has only one course of action left and that is to turn his attention on God's people. But here's the beautiful thing. He can't destroy us. Did you see that? Did you notice that? He can't destroy us. He failed against Christ. He failed against Michael and the angels. And he'll fail against us too. Look, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she could be taken care of for time, times, and half a time. Don't get too thrown by that time, times, and half a time and the 1,260 days. That is all symbolic language for a period of persecution. It goes back to Daniel. I don't have time to go into the details of that, but it's not, don't start counting the days is what I'm saying. It's a symbolic time reference of a period of persecution. And when this period of persecution comes, you notice that from Satan's mouth, he spews water to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman and swallowed the water, swallowed the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. All of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his vengeance, all of his hatred is poured out of his mouth. And it just sort of absorbs into the soil. <laughs> it's almost pathetic. I think it's drawing back imagery from, from the Exodus. Remember when God's people, they, they, they are led out of slavery to Egypt and they, and they arrive and they've escaped and, and everyone's excited. They've, they've got all this plunder from the Egyptians and they're going off. They're finally, after generations, being set free. And then they arrive at the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go. And the water is going to destroy them because they're trapped. But what happens? The water just opens up and they just pass right through on dry land. It's like the water is pushed side to side and absorbed into the soil. And they just walk through unharmed. Do you remember when Christ made that promise to his disciples? He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's the beautiful thing is that, yes, Satan is an enemy. Yes, he's dangerous. Yes, he's ready to devour. Yes, we need to be sober-minded and careful. Yes, we need to watch out. But he cannot destroy the church. He can't. He's impotent because Christ has won the victory. And all of that victory started on the day that Christ was born, just over 2,000 years ago. How do we continue to fight, though? Just because he can't destroy the church doesn't mean that there aren't casualties along the way. And we continue to fight 
Scriptures are very clear in verse 11. Just look there with me if the Bible is open with you. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How did they triumph over him? It was through Christ's work. Christ triumphed over them. And what was their testimony that they gave? It was the testimony of how Christ had triumphed over them. So as we continue to live our lives, as we gather around the Lord's table, as we continue to reflect on the birth of Christ and his victory over Satan, all of this is vital, not only because it's right that we remember what God has done for us, not only because it means the forgiveness of our sins and then it helps us to live the Christian life, but also because it is the way that we war against spiritual forces of darkness. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that is our only weapon and best weapon against the enemy. That's why we do everything that we can to remember it. It informs the way that we worship. It informs the way that we live. It informs what we believe. It informs what we do when we gather around the table. Because by hearing the gospel, learning the gospel, trusting the gospel, the message that Christ has triumphed over the enemies through his death and resurrection, which was only possible because he became man on Christmas Day all those years ago, that when he won that victory, that is the weapon with which we fight Satan and his demons today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that when he was born and vulnerable, he was kept safe. That when he grew and died, that he wasn't left in death, but was raised to life as Christ triumphant as King and Savior. And Father, thank you that that same message is the weapon that we now have to continue to live the Christian life, to walk in obedience and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would never let us stray from that gospel or from that good news that Satan the accuser is cast down. He is no longer a member of the heavenly court. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.